Welcome to Homekeepers. This episode is very special, so we're going to cut the music. Jim Waddell is someone I've looked up to for almost a decade now. He's worked for years to save cultures, ecosystems, and money by pressing for the removal of four dams along the Lower Snake River in Washington State. They still stand and still damage those three valuable things. He'll tell that story himself. Jim has been a hero of mine for almost a decade. When I was 16, I saw him in a documentary called Damnation about the impact dams have on ecosystems and how removing them can lead to massive benefits. That doc played a major role in my conviction to pursue a career in storytelling, and I saw him again last year in a documentary called Coextinction, still fighting a decade later for the people and river that he loves. When we spoke on the phone to set up this chat, his voice carried the same passionate conviction I saw in the films. So when my friend and I pulled up to his house on a bright summer afternoon to interview and saw him looking rather somber, it caught me off guard. I didn't want to pry about what was on his mind, so I set up and commented on his beautiful home, thanking him for believing in the show. After saying he's happy to participate, he said this would probably be his last interview. That morning, his doctor called and told him he has terminal pancreatic cancer and just a few months to live. I said we didn't have to do this, and he said he wanted to, so we pressed record. After our conversation, he took us around his house and shared his life, telling stories of his kids, a love story of his partner, and showing us the shelves of hobby models he'd saved over his life and sought to build during retirement, adding that the beautiful wooden plane he was working on now would likely be the last one he builds. So as you listen, keep in mind the news he received just hours before speaking. This is a passionate man whose life is dedicated to public service, whose career and expertise is founded in math, logic, and reasoning, and who, on a day he received the gravest news we can, still chose to deliver his message one last time. He is a civil engineer, a father, and a lifelong public servant. Please welcome Jim Waddell. Jim, thank you so much for being on this episode of Homekeepers. You have a beautiful home yourself, and it's fantastic to be here with you. Thanks. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I became familiar with your work through the film Coextinction, and obviously you've done a, a phenomenal amount of work in the environmental space. You've like your your career has basically bring like been bringing important data into the realm of federal discussion in a way that in a way and at a scale that I haven't personally seen done by anyone else before. And it's very impressive. So I wonder if you can uh, elaborate on what your career has looked like for you and why we're chatting together today. Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks for the observation about all the information that we put together over the years. Yeah, I uh, you know had a long career with the Army Corps of Engineers, and one of my assignments was the Deputy District Engineer in Walla Walla, Washington, which is where the Four Snake Dams are and a couple other big dams on Columbia River and so forth, and I was in charge of all that. And while I was there, we completed a $33 million feasibility engineering study that then became an environmental impact statement on the feasibility of breaching the dams. And when I was there, I was reading these, th and this is like 5,000 pages long, you know, draft after draft coming across my desk every two weeks, asking my staff questions, and they're giving me this song and dance. Oh, okay, I'll get back to you in three weeks. Oh, wait a minute, I need to know now. But anyway, it was it was a long, drawn-out process. But when I when I got into reading all this stuff, I realized there was a lot of bias toward keeping the dams in the language of the reports, and so I tried to correct some of that 
I also was surprised that some of the economics seemed kind of out of place or too, you know, too, too good looking for these dams. Hmm. And in fact, one day um, we were uh, having a briefing on navigation or something and benefits and costs. And I kept asking questions. I said, guys, why is it so hard for you to explain to me why there's not a positive benefit cost ratio on this feature on these dams? And it was no answer. But then it's interesting, the next morning when I got to work, I found two reports from 1933 and 1945, or 36 and 45. And in them, the Corps had studied the Snake River dams before they were built. Obviously, they were to build the dams. And in, in the first case, the, uh, the answer was don't build them. They're not economically feasible in the 1936. Really? And then in 1945, the dams were authorized contingent upon these old reports. And so the Corps was in a catch-22. The old report said they're not economically viable. And so the Corps then, in, 19, in two years, in 1947, put out another special report where they manipulated the economic data. And it's right there in black and white to show that the dams would be a benefit when, in fact, they weren't. And so the answer my staff was giving me was simply this. These dams should have never been built. They were, they, were, they were authorized under a phony pretense of environmental conditions that weren't true. And so that's when I realized, wow, this thing is, is, is basically a sham. Mm. Anyway, is, is my job as the deputy district engineer was to make a recommendation on what we should do. And to me, the biology was very clear uh, that we needed to breach the dams right away if, if we're going to save salmon. And then um, the economics, I said, it's, it's so squirrely. It, it's, very, it's full of questions and so forth. The costs don't seem right. But I was not in a position to, to just nail it because it was just thousands of calculations and so forth. Um, so anyway, but my decision was overruled. And uh, the decision was made, notwithstanding what the EIS said, was to uh, continue with operating the dams. And in fact, the summary document on the EIS says the thing that we chose to do was actually worse than doing nothing and was going to cost $350 million when in fact it cost a billion dollars. So think about that. Wow. The Corps chose an option that was worse than doing nothing in terms of biological benefit and spent a billion dollars and got nothing for it. So that was so that was then, and then I moved on in the Corps to another job. When when was that? Like what? what that year was in the that? 1999 to 2002 time frame. Okay. And so uh, so I left Walla Walla in 2002, went to Atlanta, Georgia, worked there with the Corps for some years until I retired, and came back out to the Pacific Northwest to because uh, it's where I wanted to live on the water. And, it's beautiful um, here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and. Um, while I was here, not long, um, the Elwha Dam breaching was going on, mm-hmm. and um, I decided to go to a science symposium because I didn't know anything about the Elwha dams. And so as I'm listening to this big science symposium, um, about 700 people sitting there, and uh, Yvonne Chouinard from Patagonia was a speaker, yeah. and he spoke about the need to breach the Snake River dams, but, you know, gee, the, the economics were such that it just was going to take forever to breach them because they have a lot of economic viability. And then someone from Save Our Wild Salmon also got up and said virtually the same thing. Well, I'm sitting back in the back row of this place, and I'm going, wait a minute, that is just flat wrong. If you read these reports, you'd know that the economics, you know, was was bad. So anyway, I was self-motivated, I guess, through my vision or whatever to, and my ethics to say something. So I walked around the entire audience and got to the front of the room 
And at the last moment, the moderator said, we have time for one question. And so I just grabbed the mic and said, well, I don't have a question, but I've got to tell you something. And I told him who I was from the Army Corps of Engineers. And boy, you would have thought everybody, you could hear a pin drop. Everybody's <laughs> mouth was like, oh, my God, this guy from the Corps is going to rip these two apart. Well, what I did was I agreed with him. But I said, you're wrong about the economic viability. Those dams are an economic travesty. They need to be breached now. They never should have been built. And so the crowd went nuts and so forth. <laughs> well, anyway, I didn't realize I was being filmed and by a Patagonia film crew who then, you know, said, hey, we want to, you know, put you in a movie, mm-hmm. a documentary. And so uh, they came by here and interviewed me here at this house uh, a year or two later. And, and that became Damnation. And once Damnation came out, I got re-engaged. Uh, they wanted me to do, uh, with each, a lot of the um, screenings, to do a panel. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, I guess I better go back and do my homework. Because it's been 10 years or 12 years since I was involved with this. So I opened up all my boxes and stuff and pulled out the reports and started reading them. I was able to conclude conclusively that using the economic data but correcting assumptions that the dams had no economic viability whatsoever. And so I started documenting over that. And so for the last 10 years, maybe 20,000 hours of pro bono time I put into this. And with some help with some good people, too, by the way. And, um, but, and we developed a lot of set of documents and so forth. And so that's what, you know, from where I got involved to where I am now, you know, sitting here. And, of course, we've written letters to presidents. I've gone to congressional, 50 or 60 congressional staff meetings and um, just, you know, all kind of interviews and stuff like that. So it's an enormous effort. Um, but we're still sitting here and the dams aren't breached. Yeah. And I mean, you've you've worked even even beyond that in like bringing important data into the federal conversation. Like you've, you've also spent time with the EPA and the NSF and like worked in the White House for a little bit as well, too. Um, how how has how has that experience um affected the way that you approach a policy problem? Well, that's a good question. I think it's, it was when I, I've always been a person that wanted to, you know, discover the truth. To me, that was just so cool. As an engineer, say, wait a minute, guys, we're not thinking about this right way. And then when I worked in the White House, you know, telling the truth got me in trouble. Mm. In fact, you know, when I was working in the first Bush administration, I got in trouble because they wanted me to lie. And I said, I can't lie. And they said, well, if you can't lie, you can't work in the Bush White House. Mm. And so it wasn't long after that that I just went ahead and went back to the core. But it, it, candor is what's really critical. And I think what pre- people appreciated me, leaders, general officers and so forth, they, they brought me on tough tasks because they had been through the ringer with the process and they needed somebody with some intelligence but also had candor that was willing to tell them what they may not want to hear. Now that takes a strong leader to even ask for that and occasionally I did work for people like that, like at Bob Carell at National Science Foundation, Nancy mm-hmm. Maynard in the White House, and, so, uh, and some generals that I worked for in the Corps of Engineers. And so each of those experiences, you know, might have been a bust in the chin, you know, leading with my chin. But for some reason, that, that, that motivates me to keep going because I, I realize, you know, it's like an old saying that Winston Churchill said. He said, you know, some men stumble over the truth and just often just get up and, and scurry away as if nothing happened. 
And to me, discovering the truth was really important. And so that's really what I've been all about in my life. You know, people say, are you passionate about this or that? I said, well, no, I'm just an engineer trying to get the truth out. Yeah. And, you know, people say, well, you were an advocate for dam breaching. I said, I'm no more an advocate for dam breaching than I am the number 10 being an advocate for 10 when it's just the sum of 2 plus 3 plus 5. It just is. I don't have to, you know, if I come up with 10, it's it's not, I'm, I'm not advocating 10. It's the answer. Yeah. And so. So it's, it's very simple like that for me. But I'll also say that, you know, I taught a lot of environmental ethics in the Corps of Engineers, did training on it with tribes and so forth like this. Mm. And, um, you know, ecology and economy are two sides of the same coin. And I realized that way many, many years ago, even in college, I was taught that. And so that's also what I was seeing here is that people, you know, they say, well, you're environmentalist. Well, I'm also an, ecolog- an economist. I mean, I, I think both ways. And so, mm-hmm. you, you know, you get labeled, though. You know, if you're an environmentalist, you, you know, you're just out there a wacko liberal or whatever. Sure. And if you're an economist, you're a right wing or something. I sure. said, no, they're, they're fundamentally the same thing. It's the essence of sustainability to understand the relationship of ecology and economics. And that's what I've been trying to drag the truth out of people for years and why I ended up basically giving up 10 years of my life here to do this. Yeah. I mean, thank you for doing that. I remember like learning personally, like, I mean, it was in like one of my 101 classes in college, like the talk of the sustainability triangle where like every decision has an environmental impact, an economic impact and a social impact. And those three things need to be considered and ideally balanced as best as they can. Um, favoring like certain either one of those three sides if like need be for the particular situation right um and i think i mean that's something that is like so agreeable to everybody when it's phrased outside the context of a like polarizing conversation where it's like you know like two plus three and five make ten like having these dams in this particular location actively hurts the species that live in the river and there's nothing that we can do about that besides removing them from existence that's as simple as that yeah this is a very emotional like topic um and it's it's extremely emotional for everybody affected by it and everyone involved in it myself included but i find it's helpful from a productivity perspective to like just step back and think about things logically which it seems like you're extremely well versed in being an engineer so before we started recording, like we spoke about the Elwha um, and didn't really like compare it to the Lower Snake, but the Elwha River uh, story is, is one of my favorites. And actually, when you like now that you mentioned like Damnation, it's been a long, long time since I saw that film. Like I saw it was one of the reasons that I got into like that my, the, my degree and like started getting into environmentalism was like seeing that film and being like, whoa, that's crazy. Like a project like that can happen. I want to do that. And so I guess I had seen you earlier than I even thought. I didn't, I didn't realize that you were in that, too. What, what about Elwha? Like, what cooperation led to Elwha? And what led to that success? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, Elwha was debated for years, and mm-hmm. it was up for relicensing because it was a private dam. Okay. And uh, which, of course, the court, the... Snake River dams are not private, they're federal, so they don't go through a licensing process. Got it. Um, but in the process of relicensing, this, this, this government employee down in Olympia with the state was flipping, you know, just going through the, um, the license application, 
And he said, wait a minute, these dams are located in a national park. You can't have dams in national parks. Mm. And so it basically was an instant showstopper for, yeah. you know, when the tribes realized, oh my God, look what this guy's, you know, he's pulled an ace out of it. And, and so it, was, it wasn't hard then to convince, at least from a policy standpoint, what needed to be done. Now, from a societal standpoint here in the Port Angeles area, they had to have a lot of meetings and showed people, hey, this is only 1.5 megawatts and your lights aren't going to go out. You know, you got bondable power providing power. It's like, don't worry. And they finally did. So it was, it was authorized. The authorization was kind of weird because these were private dams and basically they were bought into the federal system to breach, which I thought, that's a crazy idea wow. because now you got to yeah. involve the federal government here. Um, but anyway, the plan was to have the National Park Service lead the effort. Um, in fact, when I was in the Corps headquarters years ago, while this was all getting started, we got a request, you know, from forget who, uh, somebody in the, in the federal government saying, well, you're the Corps of Engineers, so you want to take this dam breaching thing on? And me and my colleagues, you know, we we're like, yeah, let's do this. This will be a great precedent in the, you know, there was too many people. Oh, no, no, no. We don't want to be associated with dam breaching. So we passed off on Elwha breaching, and it ended up with the Park Service and Bureau of Reclamation, and who then inherited the dimes. Park Service did the design, put it down the street, you know, but no money. Appropriations. You need federal appropriations if it's a federal project. What are, what are appropriations? The money from Congress. Congress okay. had to appropriate the money, and they weren't doing it. So, you know, the roughly 1997 time frame, or 99 to about uh, 2000, I may have my dates wrong, but about 15 years or 12 years, they, they sat there on the books mm -hmm. with no money. And the only reason they got breached when they did is because during uh, Obama's presidency, he had the American Recovery Act. And so in that act, they want federal projects to create jobs. So they, they send out messages to all the federal agencies. You got a shovel-ready project, send it in. And it's, it's literally no more than a couple lines description and how much money and how many jobs. And so the, these guys back in OM Office of Management Budget, they line all this list up and they said, well, we want whatever it was, $8 billion in projects. And they put it on there lower and LWA was on there. Oh, no way. Yeah. And because it was an ombudsman bill, Congress either had to pick, choose, you know, vote the whole thing or nothing. Mm -hmm. And so they weren't going to, you know, shoot down that during a recession. So they voted for it. And that's how LWA actually got done. And so, and it's interesting because with the snake dams, they're federal, um, but we have a really incredibly cool situation in the fact that we don't need federal appropriations to breach these federal dams. Really? Because under the law, the 1980 Power Act, Bonneville Power is responsible for 92% of all costs on the lower snake dams. Hmm. So if you breach, they have to pay 92%. Now, the thing is, under the same law, they have fish mitigation requirements to, to make up for the lost fish on these dams. And fish mitigation, could, could you define fish mitigation? Fish mitigation is doing things on the dams to improve juvenile survival or doing habitat work to, you know, for out in the streams and so forth. Like helping keep fish alive. Yes. Basically. Okay, so BPA could choose as the cheapest alternative, which it is for fish mitigation to recover salmon, is to pay 100% of that cost. 
You know, by the way, when they do that, they get a credit from the Treasury, and I won't get into the details, but it's called a 4H10C credit, in that same act that actually gives them a 22% rate rebate. And so it actually, they save money by paying for the whole thing. Yeah. And the beauty of that is Bonneville, even though it's a federal agency, they do not use federal appropriations. They use rate payer money. That's, mm. that's what I pay in my power bill every month goes to, you know, paying them. And so BPA can simply choose to pay for this breaching. It's their discretion. And so that doesn't require any congressional authorization, doesn't require congressional appropriations. Breaching the Snake River dams is probably the easiest set of dams in the country to breach. And yet we're not doing it because people have insisted we do need authorization to breach from Congress. And we don't. And I was a policy guy in headquarters. And I know this. I laid these policies out years mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, it's an inherent um, responsibility of the Corps to deactivate and retire any project that's not economically viable or is causing un undue harm to the environment. And so the Corps has the inherent authority to breach it. BPA has the money, and so it's quite easily done. And in fact, because breaching is just, you're just basically removing the earth and berm of the four dams, mm -hmm. that earth and berm can be notched and hydraulically breached by the river behind it in a matter of a few months on each dam. And so, and it doesn't require any expensive designs and no modeling because it's all nature doing the work. You're saying like, like if you make a little, basically if you like, hurt the dam like you make a little boom like in it then the river itself will just like plow the dam out exactly so it doesn't take that much yeah. machinery or anything no and we've designed it in such a way that we lower the pool and cut a notch so it's not the full height of the water but about half half the height and about one third of the water actually conducts the breach in other mm. words you cut a notch down about 50 feet through the dirt berm and then let the water come up, blow it away, and eight hours later, the dam's gone. Wow, that fast. That fast. That so that's another difference with a whole project. Yeah, and that's another difference with Elwa. Elwa was really technically challenging to yeah. breach. And anybody that's watched those time elapse movies, you know, all this stuff going back and forth. Snake River is so easy compared to that. It's it's it's, it's almost boring. I mean, you know, you did, the only hope is that when they breach, you happen to be there during that forty-five minutes when the breach actually takes place. Yeah. Wow. So it's like I I had no I genuinely had no idea that it was that easy. I thought like because I I was picturing yeah like footage from Elwha where you know there's like the big crane like swinging around and like doing all all sorts of stuff, but it. It's really genuinely cool that the river itself brings it back to life. Yeah, and I mean, everybody's been led to believe that we need to take out all the concrete, you know, the spillways, the turbines, the, the lock. You don't. It just sits there forever. And the mm. river just runs right around it where the earth and berm is. Yeah. So that's like something that like if it was desired to be removed, then yeah, like they could take the time to move that stuff out of the way for like aesthetic purposes. What, the concrete? Yeah. But like, it, it's, it would, would cost billions and billions yeah. of dollars. And, okay. and the Corps studied that and recognized back when I was there, we don't need to do that. All we need to do is, is remove that earth and berm. Understanding the beauty of nature and the way that it works and just fluid dynamics in general and like political cooperation, like understanding all of those systems and how they work together actually presents a really, really great case for cooperation and celebration that I 
I, I feel like we, we focus so much on like fighting when we talk about policy um, and presenting things as opportunities for cooperation and opportunities for like a celebration to take place is very, very motivating. You know, you're hitting at something that uh, is always an issue in a complex project. And let, let's say as easy as easy it is to breach the dams, the complexity lays in the the perception that things um, like the economics or the biology um, don't support dam breaching. And, mm-hmm. and let me focus on the economics for a second. Yeah, go for you it. Know, there's, the, the dams have basically two authorized purposes. They're hydropower and navigation. Navigation means they've got locks on them and barges can go up the river to Lewiston, Idaho. Well, it was clear that when we looked at that back in 20 years ago in their study is that the, nav- the, the navigation system Um, can easily be taken over by the railroad, which is already a rail line on along the river, right right next next to almost all of the grain elevators that their farmers are taking their grain to. And so, and in the meantime, the last 20 years, that rail line's been upgraded by the railroads. And so we've got a really first-class railroad there that can take all the barge wheat. Wheat is the only thing shipped on the grain, on the Snake River anymore. Mm. All that grain can be shipped. And the farmers, you know, they talk in the, the pro-dammers say, well, it's going to put 100,000 trucks on the road and all this kind of stuff. And they go, wait a minute, time out here. Think about this. How does the, how does the truck work? The, the grain comes off the combine. It goes into a truck, and the truck takes it to a, an elevator, a grain elevator, either at a rail site in some place or down to the river. Okay? Now, if you take away the barges and you got rail in the same places, a farmer doesn't take his truck anywhere different. It's exactly the same in 99% of the time. There's a couple of you know cases where it might not work out. Sure. But by and large, it's it's uh, it's all there. And our own analysis, even though we didn't come out and say it, showed that the rail movements most of half the time are as cheap as grain movements, and that was 20 years ago. And rail has gotten more efficient. So it's clear that shipmenting grain by rail is an easy solution on the lower snake. Mm-hmm. Now, the bigger issue is the hydropower. Gee, what do we do about this? Uh, do we replace these, these uh, the hydropower, which is, um, you know, the dams have a capacity of over 3,000 megawatts, they only average annually put out about 900 megawatts because mm. the river is so low in flow during the summer, especially, and in the winter, too, that it cannot produce power when it's needed. And lo and behold, when it can produce power is in the springtime. Lots of it because of the snow melt. Well, gee whiz, guess who doesn't need a lot of power in the springtime? Nobody does. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> you're you not really, you know, winter's cool over, anyway. summer hadn't started, you don't have heaters or air conditioners going. And so all this surplus, I mean, we're thousands of megawatts of hydropower is dumped on the market in the springtime at a loss mm-hmm. to Bonneville Power and its ratepayers. And so... The Snake River dams, even when you look at the averages and the total average annual output of all the hydro system, we these dams are producing surplus power. Mm-hmm. Now, and then what happens to that surplus power? It, it gets sold. But it, see, the Bonneville is supposed to be selling their their prior, their requirement by law is to give that sell that hydropower to public utilities like mine. I'm a public utility commissioner, which oh by the way I didn't mention. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so that power goes to us, but we don't need it all. And so it's sold in the secondary market they call it. 
as surplus. And that secondary market could be other cities, other utilities or whatnot. But if it's too much, then it's sold at a loss. Mm. And we know that uh, based on generation data, we don't even need models to show this. We can look at the generation data, which is captured every five minutes by the Corps of Engineers. And we can see that based on the generation data, we've only rarely gotten to a point where you might have needed a few megawatts, 20 or 30 for a few hours here and there across a couple of year time frame of Snake River power. But that power can also, BPA can also buy that power on the open market from somebody else, mm. a utility with another dam like Grant or Douglas County or uh, a, a, a gas fired plant. So even in the most dire situations, there's still surplus power. Now, people in BPA and the pro dam, well, it's not really surplus because it's under contract. Yes, but the public power obligation is being met without the need of the Snake River dams. Okay, so do we need to replace the power? Well, no, you don't. And so, but every argument you get into, especially by the environmental groups, they say, well, we need to replace the power first with renewables. Okay, yeah, I'm all for renewables, but if you don't need to replace the power, you know, why say you need $10 billion worth of windmills, uh, wind turbines and solar and battery mm -hmm. to replace it? You know, that, you know, doesn't make any sense. And it's not, it's, it's not how the economic calculus would work on the dams. Yeah, if, and if it makes it's, it a harder decision to make. Right, too. and so... But, but that's what you hear is, oh, yeah. we got to replace renewables first, and then we can talk about dam breaching. Mm -hmm. Well, no, you breach. And the other thing you do with breaching is you, you free up 3,000 megawatts of grid space on the transmission sit, system. So there's a lot of renewables that are waiting to be put onto the grid, BPA's grid, but there's no transmission space. Oh, readily available. Okay. Yeah. And so they have to go through a convoluted process to try to get it on there. But if you breach Snake River dams, you create open transmission access in a lot of areas. So that's that. And then there's some irrigators that draw water off and they've made claims that it costs hundreds of millions of dollars. And when in fact we can extend the pumps down into the river when we drop down the reservoir, you know, okay, so fine. You just extend the pumps, put additional, um, additional pipes and pumps down there and some screens. And you've satisfied the irrigators for $25 million. So all the, myth, the fixes are either cheap or free. In other words, yeah. you don't need to replace the power. You can fix the irrigation. You can, the only thing you do with railroads is you, can, is you change the conveying system from barge loading to rail loading. Okay, so that's going to cost a million bucks here and there and so forth. Yeah. So from an economic standpoint, all the answers are there. And then on the biology, you know, we go through all kind of national marine fisheries and so forth, and the states go all through complicated modeling of um, survival rates on the Snake River dams. Mm -hmm. and, and yet their own reports show that the smolt to adult survival ratio, and what this means is for every, for instance, thousand smolts that go down. And we're specifically talking about salmon now. Salmon, yes. yes. How many come back? And so... You know, if if you if you got a hundred salmon going back and you only got two coming back, the survival ratio is two percent, mm -hmm. two out of one hundred. Okay, so National Marine Fisheries says you got to have um, you're going extinct if you're below two percent SARs. If you're below between two and four percent, you're kind of holding steady. And if you want to recover the species, which we're supposed to be doing, you got to be above four percent. 
Well, for the last 10 years, the survival ratio has been well below one. It's like 0.5. Mm. Yeah. So this means that we're having massive mortality through the Snake River dams and the reservoirs. And most people forget about the reservoirs kill maybe more salmon than the dam itself. That was the most fascinating part of like learning about the issues for salmon survival from the dams for me was like, I assumed it was like, it's hard to get past the wall and certainly it is. But then on top of that, the heat in the reservoir is actually the thing that's like doing a massive amount of damage to the salmon. Well, yeah, I think you said heat. Yes, warm yeah. water, but also predators. Oh, there's, yes, there's invasive yeah. smallmouth bass and pike minnows and stuff like this that just literally have evolved eating these um, young, you know, juvenile smolts. And so the mortality in those four dams and reservoirs, you know, National Marine Fisheries says, oh, it's 35 or 40 percent. I think it's higher. Other biologists have agreed with me, maybe 50 percent. The National Oceanic Atmospheric Association figured that number out in 2013, finding salmon survival rates in the Lower Snake River to be dead on with Jim and his colleagues, at 50% for steelhead and 52.5% for Chinook. Think about this. We know that just for Chinook, from hatcheries, 20 million or so Chinook go, into that, go through that system every year. If you kill half of them, before they ever get to the Columbia River, not to mention the ocean, you know, this is terrible, but here's the beauty. You know, if you breach a Snake River Dam, you prevent instantly the death of half those Chinook. In other words, you 10 million of them survive. They wouldn't have survived with the dams there. So mm -hmm. when people talk of, about- off of all four disappearing or- off Yeah, of if you breach all four, yeah. you, would, you would save half the salmon. Awesome. Okay, so there's no other way on this planet to quickly restore salmon runs that way. You know, there's all this talk about more hatcheries, more habitat work. They're doing it all around here and so forth. It, it, nothing can come close to, to stop killing 10 million Chinook salmon yeah. every year. And that's what the dams do. So that, that's on the biology, it's very clear whether you're looking at survival rates or how many you kill. You know, that, that uh, the biology is very clear here. Mm -hmm. And then for orcas, you know, because orcas feed off Chinook salmon and most of their Chinook that they eat, at least for half the year historically, has been Snake River stocks. And NOAA has tracked these whales. They know where they feed in the wintertime. They feed at the mouth of the Columbia River and up the coast there catching these salmon. Mm -hmm. they, they used to feed the other half of the time in the Salish Sea. But it's interesting and, or, and sad that they used to spend 180 days in the Salish Sea around San Juan Islands especially. Yeah. There's no fish anymore over there, and so no Chinook. And so what they do is they only spend maybe, they come in for a few days, look around, head back out. And they're doing the ocean. Well, there's fish in the ocean, but they're harder to find. They're not concentrated in small areas, and so they've got to work harder. So orcas are starving, and that's been well-documented by the Center for Whale Research and Ken Balcom, who's uh, one of my board members. And um, so it's, it's from an orca standpoint, the only way you're going to save these orcas is to breach the Snake River dams. Okay, so think about it. If you want to save orcas, you want to save salmon, and you want to save money for ratepayers who, you know, in other words, it's cheaper to get, you know, to take, stop wasting money on lower snake dams, put that money on the other big dams, like on the Columbia River. Mm -hmm. They need money. They're yeah. underfunded. And mm -hmm. so if you want to save ratepayer money, save salmon, and save orcas all at the same time, 
the easiest to breach the Snake River Dam. And not 10 years from now or five years. Do it starting this year, 2022. And we've been saying this for years. Yeah. Is because, like I said earlier, the policies and the technology are there to do it quickly. It's just will. There's no will in the Pacific Northwest to do this, whether you're a politician or an environmental group or the agencies and so forth. I find that often, like now that we've, you know, come as far as we have as a species, especially like, like whether it's the Lower Snake or the Elwha or like other projects that aren't dam related, like when there's a, a situation where it's like economic feasibility versus biological integrity. And like you said, like they're two sides of the exact same coin, but when they're painted that way, when they're painted like there's an economic issue versus a biological or a ecological issue. Um, usually when you step back and everyone talks about like how those two things are actually related, the picture that's painted is a pretty simple solution that might in some cases take, you know, a significant amount of effort. In some cases it won't, but that simple solution is a really beautiful picture that like is pretty easily agreed upon. Um, depending on the, like, if we like talking like this, like across the table, like just in like a house or something like, people usually are pretty like, oh, I can see where you're coming from. Like, this makes sense. Yeah. But that venue change makes it... Well, let me give you an example of what you're talking about. A beautiful yeah. future of venue change. Sure. Is the Lower Snake Valley, before the dams were due, was, was full of little agricultural um, orchards first. I mean, uh, vineyards first, then orchards and so forth. Mm. That's all still underwater. Now, when you breach the dams, you free up 20,000 acres of that bottom land. Now, we won't redevelop it like we did back then because we want to protect the riparian areas, but about 10,000 of that acres are going to go back into agriculture. That We've had economists do the numbers on this, and that's going to create four to 5,000 jobs in a part of Washington's economically depressed. And they've yeah. been depressed ever since the, the, the promise of all the benefits from the Snake River dams never mm -hmm. materialized. Mm -hmm. And so when you open up that river, you get vineyards back, you get wineries, you get restaurants, you get all this lively activities like it's almost like a another Napa Valley here. And so that's a beautiful opportunity for Eastern Washington, but it's kind of like, you know, people there are like, oh, uh, uh, they just can't see it. Sure. And yet it was their livelihood. There are people to live today that live down in that river bottom and they knew what it was like when they were kids. And they're teary-eyed when they think about what they lost. You can have it back. The tribes can have it back. The, um, the, the Nez Perce tribe and the, uh, the Palouse and so forth, that you lost everything. They can get a lot of their fisheries back, their tribal fishing spots. You're gonna reconnect the spirit of the tribal people back to the spirit of the river. And their mm -hmm. salmon culture, you know, is gonna be back. It, it hardly exists now, yeah. and only through hatchery fish. And so this, this is a, a spiritual reawakening, an economic opportunity, a bonanza, for that, those six counties over there in Eastern Washington. Um, and it just, um, and, and, and oh, by the way, out here where I live, the fishermen that depend on those stocks out in the ocean, you put all those fish back out in the ocean, that restores our fisheries, the tribal fisheries here in the coastal area of the sea. And because the Snake River system and the Columbia system were the backbone of the salmon ecosystem, which is the Pacific Northwest ecosystem, mm -hmm. You, we are collapsing that whole ecosystem now because we're not going to take care of the snake. The last viable runs are drying up on those dams and reservoirs. 
And yet, and so that's impacting Salish Sea stocks because those stocks are now out in the ocean competing, you know, instead of being millions of other salmon out there, there's only a few thousand. And so they're out there preyed upon at a greater ratio now. So the whole system is collapsing. And in the Pacific Northwest, at least in the, uh, I don't speak for Alaska, but certainly in the contiguous 48, sure. we're collapsing an ecosystem because we're too stubborn to realize what's possible here with breaching the Snake River dams. Hmm. I dude, thank you for like sharing all that information because I, your like argument is so sound and it it's it's somewhat rare to find a like keystone opportunity where like it all, everything hinges on like a particular action but in this case it like really really is that particular action and the fact that it's such a simple like keystone is like it fills me with a lot of hope i know that there's been like so much back and forth and like lack of will to do something but the fact that it's still there and it's still possible and it's something that we can ask for tangibly is exciting because I, I think before our conversation I thought that it was a more complicated situation than it actually is. No, we've, we've turned a straightforward engineering problem, economic problem, into something far harder than rocket science. Mm -hmm. And it's just, we've made it mind-bogglingly difficult. But, it's, but if you just push all that aside and say, wait, what are the fundamentals? The engineering's there, the economics are there, the policy's there, the money's there. What are we waiting on? This is exactly the kind of story we want to continue covering on this show. The conversation is one of my most meaningful ever for reasons you already know, and producing it took many hours of time spent driving, researching, recording, and editing, as well as fuel and equipment costs. Right now we're running at a loss because we believe in the mission, and some of you do too. The financial support of listeners is helping us cover those costs. Supporters get early access to every episode and soon will be able to ask questions of guests themselves. They're the reason the show exists and the reason this conversation could happen at all. So if you're a supporter, thank you for making this moment possible. And if you'd like to become one, you can do so at patreon.com slash Alex Harris. That's A-L-E-X-H-A-R-A-U-S. All right, back to the show. Do you want to mention like how, like what you personally are going through now? We don't have to. We can. I don't want to pressure. Well, I let me just say something, and then we'll decide whether it's worth keeping or not. It's like I said. Um, you know, my days are number. I, I've I've got cancer, and it's not not good. And so, mm -hmm. uh, I won't be able to carry on this anymore. And but all the work's done. All it's all there on damnsense.org website. And but what we need is we what we've never had is a mass movement of people to hammer the White House in a simultaneous, you know, let's hit it. And, you know, I worked in the White House and I was on the receiving end of letters and phone calls and stuff like this. Really? And I know, for instance, if you get, you know, 40 letters about the same issue that are handwritten and they're not duplicates and, you know, copies and stuff like that, but original letters. That, that gets their attention. That, get, that goes into the, the White House communications office and eventually to the chief of staff. If they get thousands of phone calls, you know, bang, bang, bang every day, that will make it to the director of communications in the White House. So, I mean, if somebody wants to call the White House, Make it your what you do every morning with a cup of coffee. Yeah, like brushing your teeth. And yeah, it's at like the same you know, time. call the White House. Yeah, you know, do your thing. You say, and what do you say? You say, listen, you need to start breaching the Lower Snake dams this year. Mm -hmm. Simple. And so call them up every day, and, and if they get thousands or ten thousand phone calls like that, they'll do something. That's what will get their attention. 
um, if a couple people do it, it's not going to do it. If you know, yeah. and I've had people write a letter, and well, I got an answer back. Well, not kind of, but we need we need lots of people doing this, and so um, you know, like I said, the information's there, the data's there. Don't be put off by people that tell you, oh, but Congress has to authorize this. Not true. CORE knows this in Washington, D.C., but about out here in the Northwest, they, they pretend like, oh, we do, but you don't. That's the yeah. oldest trick in the Corps of Engineers is to say Congress has to do it. Really? No, <laughs> come on. You just say that to protect your project, your worthless project that never should have been built. And I have closed certain projects in the Corps of Engineers when I was in the project because they were pointless. Sure. And nobody said anything. You know, if, but oh, now all of a sudden, you know, we need Congress. No, you don't. Mm. CORE has all the authority they need to put a project into a non-operational status. And, and, but they'll tell people, oh, but we need this, we need that. No, don't be misled by the, this rhetoric. It's just like you said, it's really simple. The biology is simple. There's, the solution is simple. The ask is simple. Mm-hmm. Start breaching now and do that immediately. I mean, mm-hmm. you, know, I, you know, I'm one guy. My days are numbered on this planet. I can't do anymore. And so people have got to realize it's, I'm not around to carry this message anymore. Yeah. And I was only one guy. It's, it's, it's up to people like you, Alex, to, to carry this message forward, get that word into the President of the United States, and have him do something immediately because we're in a desperate situation here. And these salmon aren't going to make it. The workers aren't going to make it. And we're just wasting tax and ratepayer money. Yeah. It's something that, like, thank you for that encouragement, because it's something that I know that I and, like, many others are very excited and willing to, like, put in that effort and, like, go for it and make that happen. But it's often hard to envision what that might look like. Like, it, it's, it's difficult to, like, think of what success looks like in that situation. But I think the picture that you've painted is, like, so beautiful and it's, like, so well done to be able to understand, like, oh, there's actually an incredibly simple solve here. And there's a simple action that people can take every day to make sure that we as a species save to other species um, and also a ludicrous amount of like ratepayer money on top of that. So I appreciate that encouragement a lot. I, I, there was an, another question that I, I wanted to ask you because of like your particular unique experience being like, for lack of a better term, like inside and outside in terms of the space that you're working in to accomplish like this task, being like inside the federal government and outside the federal government. Um, for folks that are listening and like trying to figure out how they can plug into not necessarily the lower snake, but like thinking of where they're going, like in like as more of us like start getting involved in environment, environmental work and sustainability work, how do you recommend people consider like where should I plug myself in um, when I'm trying? Because I know there's like these camps of I should try to work inside of a political venue, like as part of like the federal government, for example, or I should try to work outside of that in a, a different venue that like whatever that means to them. Is there anything that comes to mind or any guidance that you might offer someone that's considering that inside outside question of like how they can make an impact? You know, you can make an impact either way if if you're willing to pursue the truth and, mm. and willing to stand up with the truth, have candor, tell and you know and, and, and tell what needs to be done. 
but that takes courage. And a lot of people will cave when they think they might lose their job or, you know, and I got, you know, I got suspended when I was at Walla Walla for the decision I made. But mm. so what, you know, um, it, you know, that, so what? Yeah. I kept moving. You, you have to stand up and take responsibility for telling the truth. And if you can't do that, it doesn't matter where you go. You're just going to be part of the process mill. You'll do your job and you'll retire and you might and you, and you will. I know people like this that will look back and, you know, they kind of they have to drink a lot to forget about what they didn't do when they mm. were in government or with a nonprofit or something like this, because they realize they just they just played the game. It doesn't matter whether it's inside or outside. You can make a difference. Mm -hmm. But we just need more people that are willing to stand up and you know, when have the courage to tell the truth. Yeah. I know we've already mentioned it, but like one more time, what specifically is the way that people can make a difference today for the lower snake and like start getting involved in really pursuing an impactful life for themselves? Well, given the urgency of the situation with the orcas and salmon, even the money, ratepayers and so forth is being lost here. The most important thing we've got to do while Biden is still president, is to get him to start that breach. Mm -hmm. And if we start it this year, that's really good. We start it next year, eh, that could be undone real easy if it gets delayed. And so it's we really have to focus on the White House. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, calling the White House, sending postcards to the White House, Writing to the White House is absolutely critical at this point in time. Where can people find the address to send their letter to? Uh, you just Google the White House. Yeah. And, and there it is. It'll pop up and it'll give you a phone number. And they have operators that take your message and they, they write them down and they pile them up every day and give them to the press secretary. Or not the press secretary, but the communications secretary. And... Um, and the same with the, the letters, there's an address there for letters and so forth. And I, don't, I guess they may even have an email, I don't know. But yeah. uh, anything that people are comfortable doing, but just we just need lots of people. This can't be 10 or 20 people. We need thousands, millions if it's going to be phone calls or whatever social media. I guess they have a they probably have Twitter and all that other stuff on there. Mm -hmm. And so whatever people, whatever tool they can use or you can tell them to use, you know, it's like, go for it. But we're at. We're at the last hour. I'm at my last hours. Uh, the orcas and salmon are at their last hours, too. And so if, if people don't rise up, it's all over. Mm. Um, the orcas are finished. The salmon are just nothing but hatchery salmon that, that, that can't survive either. Yeah. And the ratepayers keep losing money. Mm -hmm. Damn. Well, um, I know that I and everyone listening is definitely stoked to get involved with this issue and like see it through to the finish line that you've like so... You've just put so much effort into like getting the ball where it is now, and I like can't thank you enough for that. So, absolutely, we'll do our best to like get it across, um, and like we'll continue to do that together for the next however long. Absolutely. The last question that I I have that obviously I wasn't planning to ask because I didn't like know <laughs> what was going on, um, but seeing as you've received difficult news recently and are like approaching. The next chapter what advice would you give to someone that is just starting um in the environmental realm and is like because you know i mean we mentioned before we talked that I, like, I personally got involved about like environmentalism and saving saving the world because our own future lies there the orcas are important the salmon are important rate pair money is important 
but I think ultimately a lot of us are worried about losing ourselves and losing our future as issues like this and like climate change and the greater context and all that stuff continues. But I know that there's hope that lies in the future and I wonder what advice you have to folks that are just starting like in their you know 20s or even later like that are just like beginning to realize like oh i care about this um and since you're so seasoned i just wonder what you might well recommend. you if you're going to pursue something you have to be persistent you have to be irascible about going after it day after day after day or being a good analyst or whatever it is and getting the truth out there you know environmentalism is a label unfortunately and yeah. you we get labeled and then all of a sudden it becomes a this camp versus that camp kind of argument and that makes it very difficult and i don't i don't know that we can easily overcome that but at the same time we need to uh if you want to stand up for something in the environment or environment in general you 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 know do your homework don't don't come across as shrill but but come across as educated forthright determined and you know you're and you're just not going to give up and the more people that do that the better chance we have but you know you got to wonder sometime when you look at all the people that donate to environmental groups what are they is is that your contribution the, the 50 dollars or whatever and you feel good no don't do that unless you know for sure that that environmental group that you're paying money to is is doing exactly what you think they're doing so read the fine print in this mm -hmm. case did they talk about breaching immediately if not avoid them or or, or tell them that you're not giving them money anymore mm -hmm. um, if you're in those groups you gotta you're gonna have to it's tough because they too were politicized on their agenda and issues and you know it's easy to trade the snake river for something else an environmental cause you know somebody says you go talk to your congressman and you want to talk snake river dams and and maybe they say well aren't you in the wolf business too and well, they say yeah well I'll tell you what let's talk about wolves and you be quiet on the snake river dams and um and and we'll help you out on your wolf issues mm -hmm. oh, yeah come on you know that that beware the trade-offs of trading environmental issues they should they stand on their own merits mm -hmm. they should not be vied against each other for political or personal gain yeah i i i guess one more uh question then this can be the we're coming up on time so we can like call it after this but separate from like conversations in like a policy room or conversations at like a decision maker level when people are talking about things like this like person to person how do you go about reminding people that we're all people? How do you go about de-labeling, ripping off the labels and just having like person-to-person -person conversations? Because I think your candor is something that's like stood out to me and obviously stood out to other people and is something to be celebrated. But I wonder if like outside of the forums of like the Lower Snake or, you know, any issue period, like how do you, how do you encourage people to just see each other as people? Well, that's tough, and I'm, I'm, for every every group on this on this planet that are arguing issues to become politicized, it's yeah. it's how do you do that? What I've always tried to do is simply lay to the facts, be truthful about what you're doing, and like the two plus three plus five is ten analogy, you say, well, this isn't this isn't my opinion. I'm not advocate about this. I'm not passionate about the number ten. It just simply is the sum of those three numbers. And the more you do that, the more it just 
throws people off, you know, the, the people that are willing to argue with these platitudes and they just come out with something, you know, tw spin arguments and stuff like this. And, and it's not easy. And I, I, don't, I, I won't profess to be an expert at this because I've been doing it all my life. But on the other hand, I, I've had some success of just being, you know, an irascible little guy that just, you know, says, no, this is the way it is. Uh, and I do this at a lot of association meetings and, um, you know, and about the best I get is people say, well, you know, we really appreciate the fact that you stood up and said what you did. So I'm at stage one. That's stage one. They, they admit that, you know what, we got a decent forum here and we're going to allow people to talk. Stage two is, all right, then let's talk about it. Are you going to agree with me or not? You know, what, if you don't, why? Yeah. You know. But it's 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 not easy. I I will admit, and um, you know, and I've got plenty of scars to you know show f for that. But I'll tell you, you know, as my live out my last days, I, I I feel good about what I did in my life. That's so good. Everyone that I've like spoken to that knows you feels the same way, one hundred percent. So I like I seriously again can't thank you enough for like how you've spent your life because it's inspiring to me and it's inspiring to everyone that's going to be listening to this listening to this it's inspiring to everybody that's seen the work that you do because it's saved a lot um and is going to inspire many people to save a lot more so thank you and thanks also for being on the podcast it's been great chatting with you you bet Homekeepers is made with the help of people like you. Thank you to Jim, the patrons, Mitch Edder for editing, Olella for making the theme song, Tori Obermeyer for helping compile the resources you can check out in the show notes, and you for listening and striving to make the world a better place. If you want to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash alexharris. That's A-L-E-X-H-A-R-A-U-S. See you in the next one.